Great to see everybody. Uh, welcome. My name's Paul. I'm part of the uh, pastoral team here. If you're new, you're joining us partway through this uh, journey through the book of Joshua, uh, a story which was, uh, it was, an, it was uh, events which occurred uh, around about 1,400 years before Jesus, so three and a half thousand years ago, just short of. Um, and, and when we read it, and I think this is one of the great challenges actually, when we read this book in our current culture, I think we're shocked. I think when we read it, we are shocked by some of the content. We're shocked in the sense of the violence that we see in the Bible. And we don't expect violence in, in a book which seems to talk about a God who is good and kind and merciful and loving. And we're also shocked because the detail of the violence is so shocking to us. I think I'm shocked by it. I'm, I'm moved by it. And I think that's partly what we are to be. We're to be moved by what is going on here. But I, I just want to put a great big kind of rider over the whole of this journey. And it's this. We need to understand how desperate the human condition is and that the human condition can only be resolved in this world. That's, that's quite a big statement, but we're going to work it out through this story today. I want you to imagine 50, 100 years after this event. You sat around the campfire in the evening and... Uh, the children look to Grandad and they say, Grandad, tell, tell us a story of years gone by. And it might be that Grandad tells them the story of the battle of Ai. If you were here last week, you'll know that Israel had already gone up and had tried to take Ai. And when they tried to take it, they were absolutely routed and defeated. They were chased away. And they realized that the reason that they had been chased away was because they were not looking to deliver God's righteousness. They were looking to deliver human success. And now we find that they're going up to AI again. And the contrast is so dramatic. And Grandad might be telling the story now with a completely different emphasis. The story that he would be, the, the, the emphasis tonight would be how God moved, or as they called God then, Yahweh. How Yahweh moved. How Yahweh intervened. How Yahweh was victorious. It would be completely different from previously. I did a little bit of Googling on, on AI. First five pages were all about artificial intelligence. <laughs> Uh, we've moved on a little bit, haven't we? I think actually Grandad would now be a story bot um, rather than uh, a real Grandad. Well, AI was one of these cities from the ancient world which was a critically strategic city. And what we have already seen and what is critical to our understanding of why God is doing this in this place is that we've already seen that the the kind of patterns of life of the Canaanite people were horrific. 
And God was saying, I want you to go in and I want to mark you to mark this place with my kind of way of being, my kind of way of living, my kind of righteousness. And my kind of righteousness does not include human sacrifice and child sacrifice and orgies and violence. That's what marked the land before. And God is saying, go in there and be a witness to me. Be something different. And so we see the people going up for the second time into Ai. I want us to notice firstly two things. Under the heading, Yahweh the warrior. The first is this. The previous attack was marked by human strategy. And this attack is marked by divine strategy. Look at the way the text opens up. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not, be do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. Do you see the way that unfolds? We are left with absolutely no doubt who is the mastermind, who is the intervener, who is the general in this conflict. It's Yahweh. He says, firstly, against all human expectation, do not be discouraged and do not be afraid. I want to put myself in Joshua's shoes. They've been up here once and they were defeated. He's probably questioning, he's probably wondering what is actually going to happen this time. Are we going to be defeated again? Can I really be sure? Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you ever feel as though your spiritual journey is one of a series of defeats? Where you feel low, where you feel as though you've failed again, where you feel as though you've not achieved I want to encourage you that one of the reasons that we might end up in that place is because our spiritual quest for success can be rooted in our human ideas. And actually, we should be looking to God and saying, I cannot do this. I cannot be successful. I cannot win in this conflict. I need you. I need you to be the victor. I need you to break in. I need you to be the general of this conflict because I cannot do it. And it's in one sense God says to us, do not be discouraged. I've already won. The second thing we see is this. Everything rests on the name of Yahweh. In the previous chapter, when they had been defeated, Joshua prays to God and he speaks to God in this way. The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, our defeat. And they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then, what then, sorry, what then will you do for your own great name? 
That's what Joshua prays to God. They've been defeated. We haven't gone back to Ai until verse 1. And God says, I'll show you what I will do for my great name. I will unfold in front of you as the military general of this conflict a victory which will surprise you. I will, I will establish my name. You know, I sometimes think that that's the other side of our spiritual challenge, isn't it? We feel as though the name of God relies on us. And it doesn't. It really doesn't. God promises that He will achieve all that He sets out to do through His Word. We are partners. We are fellow workers. We are called to faithfulness. But we are not the ones who will bring the victory for God. We, will not be, we are not the ones who will bring the victory for Jesus. Joshua says, what will you do for your great name? And God says, this is what I'm going to do. Watch this unfold. See, this picture is very much that. It is for us to take this physical battle, a physical kingdom, a physical warrior, a physical city, a physical enemy, a physical movement. And we see as this unfolds in the whole of the journey of the Bible, we see what it becomes for us is not a physical journey and not a physical battle and not a physical land and not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual land and a spiritual kingdom and a spiritual victory and a spiritual war. That's where we are. We're not called to this kind of conflict, thank God. We're called to a way more brutal conflict. We're called to the battle for our souls. So we see that Yahweh is the true warrior. The second thing we see converging into this moment is the question that we always have to ask ourselves. And it's this, will God keep His promises? We go all the way back to a reference in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God speaks to Abraham, and I think I've mentioned this on a couple of occasions through this journey. He says this, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's what God said to Abraham. He said, out of you, tiny little family, nomadic wanderers in the desert, I'm going to make you into a nation, surprisingly, against all human odds. You are going to be my witness. You are going to be the describer of my righteousness to the nations around. And when they see you, they are to see my righteousness. They are to see my law, my justice, my goodness, my mercy. That's what they are to see in you. And because of that, anyone who stands against you stands against me. Because they are standing against my representation in the world. They are standing against my justice. They are standing against my witness. And therefore, Abraham, you need to know that your future heirs are not by themselves. Anyone who blesses you, I will bless. And anyone who curses you, I will curse. 
And so we see that God speaks and he says to Joshua, this is how the battle is to unfold. We got an extra little bit of reading. We were going to miss out from verse uh, 3 through to verse 9 because 3 to verse 9 is the description that God gives to Joshua. And then from verse 10 is the same thing actually happening. So I thought we could, we didn't shorten the reading, but there you go. Early in the next morning, look at verse 10, early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army. I think it's great this, this is kind of where it gets uh, kind of real action and real excitement. He gets the army and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with them marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush before Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the soldiers took up their positions with the main camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. And that night Joshua went in to the valley. Everything is set. Joshua is doing precisely what God has told him to do. Saying this is how it's going to work out this time. And basically, it's this. I'm going to place in front of the king of Ai exactly the same kind of offense that went up before him before. A small band of warriors. And then the rest of the army is to sit off to the side. I've got all sorts of images of kind of Lord of the Rings and all of the great battles and, and scenes like that, all of the rest of the army to go round to the side. And then as, the, as you stand up to charge against Ai, the king of Ai will rely on himself and do precisely what he thought he could do again as he did last time. He's going to come out, he's going to think, I got them last time, I can do it again. But what he doesn't understand is this time, I am with you. That's the difference. This time I am with you. Last time, Joshua, you relied on your own strength. And this time you're relying on me. Last time, the king of Ai thought he was successful through his own strength, this time he will realize that he's not. And so we have this moment where the troops, it seems, stand up and, and they start to attack the city or move towards the city and then the, the warriors of Ai come out of the city and they start to chase them, they move away, they retreat uh, and, and they, they kind of draw out all of the soldiers from, from Ai and then it tells us later on that all from both Ai and Bethel. Bethel actually isn't mentioned again. I think Bethel is mentioned to kind of locate Ai geographically. Bethel would have been known later on uh, when this was being read. And so the soldiers come out and the king of Ai and the ar sees the army and he goes out to exact the same defeat as previously. The Israelites retreat and the king calls every fighting man to pursuit. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. 
I think it's one of those moments which is almost, it's repeated again and again. This idea of holding something out. Remember Abraham? Uh, um, Moses holds out the rod. Joshua holds out the javelin. It's this moment where God says, right now, hold it out. And at that moment, so Joshua held out towards the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men of the ambush rose quickly from the position and rushed forward. They entered the city, captured it, and set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites, who had been fleeing toward the wilderness, had turned back against their pursuers. They are now caught. The city behind them is on fire, and they are trapped in a classic military pincer movement, attacked on both sides. Yahweh is victorious. God, the Lord, is the victor. He directs the attack to the point where he tells Joshua when to raise the javelin, when to move the troops. It's as though it's as though in this chapter and in this attack, the effort that the narrator is putting into the task of making us really understand this is not about Joshua. This is not about the armies. This is about God. This is about God moving in and taking them. The army of Joshua catch them 12,000 Men and women are defeated, slaughtered. And the king is taken to Joshua. We get this incredible moment, this powerful moment, which is, it's played out in our kind of idea again and again. I think I've mentioned it before. The ancient game of chess works on the principle that the king cannot be killed. (laughs) That's the idea, isn't it? When the king is captured, that really is the end. It's playing on exactly this ancient idea that the king is the representation. 1066. the, the, The arrow in the eye. It's that moment where the king is defeated. It's this ancient idea that once that happens, the game is over. And the, king, the warriors take the king to Joshua. Look at verse 29. He kills him, obviously. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate, and they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Throughout history, that idea has been repeated again and again and again and again. Let me go really gently If you go on Pirates of the Caribbean, 
you can see kind of it, this is in Disneyland, those of you who don't know what Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride Pirates of the Caribbean. You can see the kind of the metal cages where pirates are held uh, and the, the bodies of pirates are held and they're designed to kind of send this great big message, this is what we do to people who stand against us. That's what cities did in the great kind of days of the high seas. Mussolini. That's what, was, that's what the statement was in Italy, wasn't it? They took his body and it was absolutely crushed horrifically. And then him and three others, I think it was, were hung upside down. Why? Why was the body taken from where they were killed to Milan and then hung up? Because of this statement, which is, this is what happens to those who oppose what is right. Exactly the same happened with the president of Afghanistan before the uprising, Najibullah. Exactly the same thing. Then we have it in the kind of drug wars and the gangland violence where the leaders and the, 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 the statement is the bodies are taken and they are displayed. And we look at that and we think, that is just horrific. Just let me just, let me just stop us for a moment. We can get so moralistic about this, can't we? The reality is that I, think, I believe the 20th century was more violent than any other century before it. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. I would suggest that we do exactly the same thing, but in a moralistic kind of way. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever for drone attack video footage to be shown on the TV. And yet we do. Why? Because we send out a statement, this is what we do to those who attack. This is what we do to those who stand against us. We continue exactly the same pattern. The brilliant film, Zero Dark Thirty, if you've seen it, I think it's astounding, brilliant film. The whole of the story about the, uh, the attack on bin Laden and when he was finally uh, caught and killed. Why do we make films like that? Because on a, in our cinematic age, we might not put bodies up on poles, but we make exactly the same statements. And we portray them really wide. And we say justice is important. Goodness is important. And we stand against those who oppose it. We can come with our 21st century sensitivities to something like this and we might be horrified, but we are a more violent age and we continue to make exactly the same statements and we just step back and we say, I feel comfortable because it doesn't seem quite so brutal. You know, we might not kill somebody anymore with a sword. We just vaporize them with a bomb. 
We live in a violent, violent, awful, terrible, horrific world. That's the world we live in. I wish it was not like that. I wish it was a different world. I wish we didn't feel that we had to make those kind of statements. But that's the world that we live in. It is a broken, desperate world. And all of our years of attempting to resolve the problem truly have not got us any further forward. Every time we think we've resolved it, it explodes again in a different location under a different guise. We thought we had resolved it. We couldn't believe that the First World War could be as brutal and as horrific as it was. And we got through that. And we thought that was so bad, it will never happen again. And in half a lifetime later, it happened again. And since then, we have continued to slaughter and to kill and to, and to maim and to destroy. We live in a terrible, brutal world. That is the issue. I wish it wasn't like that. And we could say, well, that's just the kind of world that we are in. But does this say anything about that? Or is it just that we've got to accept that this is just the way it is? Well, if this story kind of converges, the questions of whether God is going to maintain His name, if this answers the promise to Abraham that whoever curses you, I will curse. We see another verse in Deuteronomy which had gone before, which is absolutely critical to our understanding of this text. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22, it says this, If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. That's what Deuteronomy says. You see, what Joshua was doing when he took the king of Ai and he killed him and he hung him on a pole, he was not being vindictive. Well, he, he was clearly bringing justice. But it wasn't a fit of pique. He was saying, King of Ai, you are guilty of capital offense. You are guilty before the law of God. And you are hung on a pole. And your body is taken down before the day is out. And then you are buried. That's what Joshua was saying. He was making a statement of justice. He was saying what you have done to those innocent lives with your child sacrifice, with your horrific behavior, with your standing against God, we have now brought justice against you. You stand representative of all that has gone wrong in your city. Is that as good as it gets? No. Because if that was as good as it gets, we would just be stood next to the pile of stones where the king of Ai is buried. But the amazing thing here 
is this is speaking about something that happened 1,400 years later. How? Let me read you a verse from Galatians. Christ, Jesus Christ, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. AI, 1400 BC, God is preparing the world for a moment in history which answers our problems. Where God breaks into this world. You see, that's the thing. That's what I said at the beginning. The the issues and the problems of this world have to be resolved in this world. And God says, I'll come and resolve it. I will break into this world. And Jesus Christ comes into this world And what? He becomes representative of the king of Ai. You see that? Jesus becomes cursed of God. If the king of Ai is representative of the curse of God because he hung on a pole, then Jesus is representative of the curse of God because he hung on a pole. He hung up there. And in John we read this. This is what it says about Jesus. Now it was the day of preparation. This is the day that Jesus was on the cross. It was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the body's taken down. You see, it would have been offensive for people to have still been dying on the next day of feast. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. By breaking the legs, the victim is no longer able to lift themselves up, gasps gasps some air, and they quickly suffocate. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And so Jesus, Jesus becomes the one who is dragged before the judicial system. In Joshua, the the king of Ai is dragged before the Joshua judicial system and he is found guilty and he is killed and he is hung on a pole then he is taken down before the end of the day and he is buried. And with Jesus, we have exactly the same thing. Jesus is dragged before the judicial system only in this case he is dragged before the judicial system of heaven. It looks like he's being dragged before the judicial system of Pilate and of the high priest, but the reality is he is dragged before the judicial system of his Father in heaven. 
And his Father in heaven says, you are guilty. You are cursed. You will hang on a pole because that is what happens to people who are cursed by me. And when he hangs on a pole, he is now ready to be representative where God says, look at Jesus, this is what we do to people who stand against my justice and righteousness. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Because Jesus never stood against the justice and righteousness of His Father in heaven. So how does Jesus become the one who is cursed of God? Martin Luther called it the great exchange. He said quite simply it's this, Jesus bears your curse. Do you know what? That, that makes the king of Ai an astounding story. Because it says that God is prepared to take 1,400 years to prepare the world for Jesus. And then, if you have never heard this of Jesus before, He is prepared to take another 2,000 years for you to hear of this as well. That Jesus is the one who bears the curse even though he didn't deserve to bear the curse. Even though he was not guilty, he bore the guilt so that the guilty might go free. That's why the writer to Galatians says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the exchange. He says, you deserve to be up on that tree. Do you realize I deserve to be on a pole alongside the king of Ai because I am guilty before God and God says, no, I'll tell you what, I will redeem you and I will redeem you with my son who will stand as a curse. And we realize that God is just the most patient of storytellers. You see, the stories that we tell ourselves, so we could go really highbrow about this, but what we have really started to realize in the past few decades is that the stories that we tell ourselves are way more important than we ever realized. You see, we go back to granddad telling the story to his grandchildren of the Battle of Ai, and why is he doing that? He's saying, I'll tell you the story because I want you to trust Yahweh. Because Yahweh is good and righteous, and He won the victory. I want you to trust Him, so I'll tell you the story. And we tell the story of Jesus today. Why? Because we want to trust in Jesus. We want to believe that He can be cursed, so that I do not need to be cursed. You see, the great thing is, we can tell a better story. It's an awful story what happened to the king of Ai, but it's a better story what happened to Jesus. Let me leave you with this one thought. The king of Ai is cursed. And Israel walks away with the plunder. And Jesus is cursed. 
And if we trust in him, we walk away with the riches of heaven. That's grace. We don't deserve it. But it's astoundingly good news. Good news.